Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. I first want to wish everyone a happy Lunar New Year or Chinese New Year to everyone celebrating this, the Year of the Tiger. We wish everyone a safe and happy holidays filled with happiness and a significant amount of rest and relaxation and time well spent with loved ones. In this episode, we speak with Jim Fields, founder and CEO of Relay Video, a Beijing-based creative marketing agency that specializes in creating stunning pieces of video content, both for disruptive startup businesses and large technology brands. Established in 2016, Relay Video was built on the belief that Chinese brands are the brands of the future. Relay's mission, therefore, is to make films that tell the stories of these brands to a global audience. Jim is also a marketing consultant for the Chinese venture capital investment fund, Ten Fund, and a mentor at China Accelerator. We explore the typical dynamics between creative agencies and their Chinese clients and talk about Relay's very lofty goal to become China's first truly global brand and how they use the roadshow videos as an IPO market marketing tool for companies. We also discuss what it's been like monetizing a YouTube channel as a China vlogger based on Jim's work on Greater, as well as a sneak peek into Jim's newest project, Relay.club. Enjoy. For myself, in our world, I actually spent a significant amount of time pre-pandemic traveling to Hong Kong and actually going around in central and actually pounding the pavement and spending a lot of time trying to generate relationships with investment bankers, specifically because I realized that that was such a good pathway for us to get introductions to a lot of the folks who are in these target organizations we'd like to reach. So for those listening who want to get in with target organizations, I would highly recommend not just doing perhaps what might be a more Western approach, which is trying to go in the front door and cold call or email whatever organization you'd like to collaborate with, but think carefully about in that industry, whatever industry you're in, who are the key players, who are the choke points, who are the folks who are connected, and who are the folks who can make an introduction? Because I think a trusted introduction to one of those leaders in China can go a lot further than doing a typical Western approach, which may just be a cold call or email. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early stage tech companies enter the Asia Pacific market market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much, Todd. It's such a pleasure to get a chance to talk to you. You and I go back, and I'm sure that will come out during the discussion here. We've known each other for quite some time. But why don't you inform our audience as to who you are, a bit of an introduction, and tell everybody how you ended up in China. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I just want to say uh, thank you to, to you, Todd, and also to the folks from WPIC for creating this excellent podcast. Uh, I had recently spent a few months in the United States and had a lot of long car drives, uh, whether it's from Northern California to Los Angeles and just all over California and the Bay Area. And I had been listening and enjoying them very much. So uh, kudos to you guys for producing such a high quality program. 
Um, and of course, Todd, you know, I mentioned this to you, but you really have a voice mm-hmm. that's so suited for radio. Uh, and I initially <laughs> Thank you. really admired uh, your voice and then only later connected the dots that it was actually you, a person who I had met many, many years in the past in Shanghai in the offices of China Accelerator. I have joked before that my mother used to tell me I had a face for radio. So I appreciate that. <laughs> I've been in China since 2009. Uh, I grew up in the United States in Silicon Valley uh, to a father who himself was in the technology industry. And unusually for uh, an American family, both my parents lived extensively abroad and are multilingual. Uh, so my father, he speaks Russian, French, and German, actually. And from a young age, we had been encouraged to study additional languages and tried French, failed. Uh, and then eventually, when I reached high school, I was in a Jesuit Catholic uh, boys school that offered a Mandarin Chinese program, uh, started taking it in high school and continued taking it uh, in Boston in Boston College, uh, which was also a Jesuit university. And my third year in university had the chance to go to Beijing in 2009. And that was just after actually the Olympics that had taken place in 2008. Uh, which is interesting now, a little bit of sort of historical loop as we now get to yet another Olympics taking place uh, in Beijing next month in February. Um, And at that time, it was such an exciting moment to be in China. There was so much going on. There was so much dynamism. There was companies that were growing quickly. The economy was absolutely skyrocketing. And there was this sense of optimism and energy that was just sort of intoxicating. Um, and this is also in context of the fact that in you know 2008 in the United States, there was also Lehman Brothers and the financial crisis. It just felt like China was a rocket ship. So after going back to the United States and finishing my fourth year of university, the second day after I finished uh, my, my degree, I got in an airplane, Boston Logan Airport, and flew back to China, uh, where I've been since then, from 2010 all the way to now. And you are currently in quarantine. So, you know, for the for the listeners, uh, we occasionally hear the the odd, odd, you know, auditory effects of, sure. of, of you, you know, somebody being in in China or in an office. Uh, there's no escaping auditory noises uh, in China, as I've as I've, uh, you know, discovered from, from living there. But you are also in quarantine. And I thought, you know, something interesting uh, just because a lot of people going back to China, going to China, you know, have to go through the quarantine. Tell us actually what is quarantine like as you you know, you said you just returned after Christmas. Now you're back on your way through. You got two weeks of quarantine. What is quarantining like right now in China? Yeah. So it's interesting how different the approaches are between the United States and China. Um, I recently was in the United States for my first trip in the last two years to visit family uh, because of the you know COVID situation. It hadn't been really feasible to go back. And you know, flying from China to the U.S., you can arrive at SFO or in New York or anywhere and walk out of the airport and go immediately to a sports game or a mall or wherever it is you'd like to go. But flipping things around when you come back to China, it is a totally different process. So before you depart from the United States, you have to do a variety of uh, COVID tests, both nasal and blood tests that you submit to the consulate. And then you get on the airplane after those tests have been submitted and you've been given the requisite QR code. You get on the plane. Uh, Of course, you wear a mask for the entire flight. And when you arrive in China, whether you're in Beijing or Shanghai, you have to do a whole bunch more COVID tests on arrival. And then after waiting for several hours at the airport, then you also uh, 
will be assigned based on the district where you live to what's called a quarantine hotel. So these are ordinary hotels that have been converted into quarantine hotels, which means there's no patrons or guests that are not quarantining. So every single room has been transitioned into sort of a quarantine space. And depending on the city, there's different regulations. Some cities say it's 14 days, 21 days, or perhaps even 28 days uh, where you have to remain in that room and on a daily basis, twice a day, monitor your temperature. And then also periodically every two to three days, take a COVID PCR test. And basically the, the, when they say you're in a room, you're in a room. So the room that I'm in is a, you know, a decent hotel room, king size bed window that opens, but you remain in one single room. Uh, some, you know, less charitable folks would call it being akin to in a prison cell, uh, where you spend the entirety of those 14, 21 or 28 days. So as I speak to you now, this is the sixth day of my 14 days. Uh, and I'm, uh, yeah, clinging on to the last vestiges of my sanity. So <laughs> getting the chance to talk to you is actually something I've been looking forward to the last few days and uh, a very nice way to break things up. So thank you. Thank you for that. You know, and I, I appreciate that. I I like being somebody that somebody looks forward to. And I, you know what? Six days in quarantine to make that actually have to happen for the first time in my life. I'll I'll take that. I'll take that. Yeah. Um, I appreciate that. Let's start with talking about relay video. Okay. Sure. So we're gonna need a general description and, and a high level for our audience here. So tell us about relay video, what you're aiming to do, and then some of the highlights of the last five, six years of of running it. Yeah, absolutely. So Relay Video is a video production company that uh, I founded in 2016. And the genesis of this was for decades, China has been the sort of manufacturing hub of the world. And there's been, you know, obviously incredible capability of companies to produce these made in China products, whether it's Apple and iPhones or Foxconn or, you know, dozens, legion of other uh, companies that have been making things here. But the interesting development in the last you know, couple decades, especially in the last 10 years, has been the rise of homegrown brands in China, particularly in the technology area, that are designing, creating, innovating, and you know, sort of domestically making products and services that are at a global international level that people all around the world are interested in purchasing. So whether you have, for instance, drone companies like DJI or consumer electronics companies like Xiaomi or smart automotive companies like Xiaopeng, you're starting to see brands in China that really have products that are, you know, either at the same level or perhaps even surpassing their counterparts in other markets. And the interesting part about it is in China, a lot of the founders of these companies are STEM graduates who they know a lot about engineering and they know a lot about, you know, how to create a product, but they might not know much about the soft skills, which is about things like storytelling, communications, PR, marketing. And especially when these companies take that step to, you know, step onto the global stage, many of them are lacking marketing collateral and materials that are going to tell that story, particularly in English, to a global audience. And seeing that gap, um, we noticed that there were a lot of international companies around the world who work with international brands. There's many domestic Chinese PR and communications companies that work with domestic brands, but there are very few companies that specialize in helping Chinese companies launch their products and services to the world. So we decided to create this company in 2016, which was oriented on the belief that Chinese brands are the brands of the future, and we would help them create films to tell their stories to a global audience. When you're working with Chinese companies, 
what are you finding that they do really well? You know, natively com- comes with the culture, comes with the, you know, just the, the the territory. When it comes to communicating with the rest of the world, you know, there must be things that they're doing very well that they instinctually can can get right. Where is it also a bit more of a leap for them? And where are you coming in? Where are you providing their assistance in either helping them learn, uh, you're training them, or really just amplifying the stuff that they already do well? Well, one massive gap that I think doesn't get discussed enough is, you know, I grew up and was born and raised in Silicon Valley. My first job was as a barista at Starbucks in downtown Mountain View. And regularly, we'd have these titans of industry like Tim Cook who would come in and get his coffee every day. And my father worked in marketing. My own brother works in Silicon Valley at one of the big tech giants. So this is a world I know very well. And I think the narrative in the United States is Silicon Valley is extremely fast moving and things are getting iterated and developed quickly. And you know it is this hub of innovation. But compared to the speed and energy and velocity of how things are getting done in China, uh, it feels like Silicon Valley is such a slow moving place. So uh, the Chinese companies that we're working with, you know, I think a lot of the narrative, of course, is around overwork and 996 and, you know, these brutal working schedules. But the ability of companies in China to move from developing an idea to iterating a product to getting it in the hands of consumers uh, is just phenomenal. And that can be software products, that can be hardware products. But across the board, I think these companies are like incredibly efficient and fast when it comes to creating products and developing services, rolling out new features in a way that, you know, sort of puts Silicon Valley to shame. Uh, and I think, you know, as far as what we can do, uh, you know, sort of looping back to this, this story about communications is often there is so much going on and there is so much development and there is this kind of rush uh, to iterate that I think sometimes these companies aren't stepping back and looking bigger picture to say, okay, well, you know, we have this family of products and services, but who are we as a company? Who are we as a brand? What is the narrative that we want to communicate when we talk about what we do? What is our vision? And putting that out in a way that, you know, some outsider who's not within the trenches of that company can like actually wrap their heads around. So I think that's kind of where we can add value, you know, myself and our founding company members. Um, I have two founders who are based in China as well, are both also Americans who are fluent Chinese speakers. But we spend a lot of time sitting down with these company founders, trying to draw out those bigger picture thoughts, uh, as opposed to just talking about products to really start to think about the brand and their their vision and their purpose. Are you helping them locally or globally? So the collateral we produce is uh, English language corporate videos that are primarily used for global consumption, whether it's on a website or a social media platform or basically yeah, global usage outside of China. Is it product? Do you have humans on screen? Is there scripts? Is it all digital CGI type stuff, uh, graphics, music? What exactly, if you don't mind me diving into your details a little bit, just so that people can have uh, try to visualize the concept of the of the product that you're producing? Absolutely. So every film is different and the approaches also change depending on the company. But I would say what we do tends to break into probably two to three categories. One of them is just a visualization of the entire universe of what companies do. So take a company like Meituan, uh, which is one of the biggest uh, 
well, initially you could call them a group buying service, but they've sort of evolved to be like the everything store in China that does food delivery and a huge variety of other services, uh, sort of like Groupon meets Amazon meets Uber Eats in China. And so they have this huge panoply of all these products and, and services that they offer. But oftentimes people outside of China don't really understand what they do. So we created a story called A Day in the Life of Meituan, where we actually link together the user journey of someone who could interact with all their products and services in one day. So we created a live action film where we showed all the touch points in a Chinese city that Meituan actually affects, and then showed what that looked like through the narrative of a, a man and a woman going through an entire day. So they're booking food deliveries through the app. They're traveling around the city through the app. They're paying for goods and services via the app. They're buying, you know, group buy services through this app. And so for a lot of companies, that's just what it is, is like, you know, explaining in a way how the service works via user scenarios and showing the, the company. Uh, another sort of template that we use is vision. So this is often true, for instance, especially in areas like smart uh, automotive companies. Um, and obviously the last few years, there's been huge interest in EVs, but a lot of those companies are keen to demonstrate that they're not just either, you know, for instance, aping what Tesla does or merely just putting a battery in a conventional car, but they have a philosophy and vision for the future, which is based on, you know, technological development or proprietary chips or, you know, LIDAR autonomous sensing. And those types of stories, like you said, we do use a lot more CGI and we use a lot more sort of mission statements and interviews with company founders and technology people to explain what they do and use visuals and CGI to show what they do. Um, so the, the approach is always a bit different and it really depends on the company. We also occasionally will do more whimsical things. There's a company called PopMart that creates collectible mascots uh, that you can buy and, you know, give and place in your desk or collect kind of like Pokemon. We created a film for them where we, take those characters and actually animated them running around the corporate offices of the company and jumping around and showing a bunch of different graphics and, and uh, sort of integrated graphics showing these characters to create this very whimsical and fun story about how PopMart is growing as a business. So each story is different, but the key thing is about clarifying the narrative and then using that clarified narrative in a visual format that makes the company's mission make sense to viewers. You work with a lot of some of the most famous Chinese companies in China. And I'd like to ask a question about what it's like working with those companies, because we have a lot of brands, a lot of brand owners, a lot of brand decision makers, brand developers that are looking to potentially go to China or service companies that would be providing global service opportunities in other areas to want to try to work with Chinese companies. So I want to help give them some inside baseball on what it's like to work with those companies from your perspective and your experience. So are there things that you find easy to do? Like, hey, we're going to storyboard and we're going to build out the narrative and, and script this thing. And they're very amenable to being led or or not. I want to know, what do you think the easy things, what what are the benefits and the, and the easy paths when working with Chinese companies and their executives versus where you actually have to maybe tug a little bit and really try to encourage them and, and try to really move the needle the way you want it to go where you know it needs to be you know i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about some of the inner workings of of that relationship 
So it's a, it's a great question. And I think it sort of breaks into two areas. So the first one I would say is for, for those of you who are listening, who are interested in generating these high level relationships with executives at these organizations, I would highly recommend thinking carefully about how to reach those people and how to create the connections that are going to put you in the room with those people. And for what we do, uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, we're often creating films that are for international investors. So these films are English language videos where a company, for instance, like we spoke about, like Meituan, wants to uh, explain their mission to investors that could potentially, you know, buy stock in an IPO or in other capital market event related to that company. And because that's the domain we play in, the folks who are kind of most connected to those executives are actually primarily investment bankers. So for myself in our world, I actually spent a significant amount of time um, pre-pandemic traveling to Hong Kong and actually going around in central and actually, you know, pounding the pavement and spending a lot of time trying to generate relationships with investment bankers, uh, specifically because I realized that that was such a good pathway for us to get introductions to a lot of the folks who are in these target organizations we'd like to reach. So for those listening who want to get in with target organizations, I would highly recommend not just, you know, doing perhaps what might be a more Western approach, which is trying to go in the front door and, you know, cold call or email whatever organization you'd like to collaborate with. But think carefully about in that industry, whatever your industry you're in, who are the key players? Who are the choke points? Who are the folks who are connected? And who are the folks who can make an introduction? Because I think a trusted introduction to one of those leaders in China can go a lot further than, you know, doing a typical Western approach, which may just be a cold call or email. Um, but to get more into the specifics of what we do and, you know, for instance, how to work with these executives, the interesting thing is we will create a lot of corporate videos for international investors, for Chinese companies. And oftentimes, um, for instance, for, for smaller projects, for Chinese internet companies, you might be working with a marketing manager, a PR manager who is a mid-level person in the company. But for these highly important videos, we're often working with the, the CFO of the entire organization. And these are folks who are like intimidatingly intelligent. Uh, they're educated at some of the best universities in the world. They're usually, uh, you know, absolutely fluent in English, Mandarin, probably two or three other languages. And they're folks who both have like right and left brain abilities. So these are, you know, some of the most intimidating and intelligent folks that I worked with in my entire career. And that's every single time we work on a project. Uh, but the interesting thing about it for us is, these CFO types, as knowledgeable and, and capable as they are, oftentimes they're not experts when it comes to making films because they've spent a lot of their careers, you know, raising money or interacting with investors. And it's often the first time that many of our clients have ever made a video is with us. Uh, and often the first time that a Chinese internet company has ever made an English language video is also when they're working with us, because primarily a lot of them have made Chinese language films for the domestic audience. So for us, I think it really comes down to empathy and education. So again, these are, you know, bearing in mind the fact that these folks are highly intelligent and, you know, certainly more educated and intelligent than I'll ever be uh, taking our little slice of domain expertise and being humble and using, you know, for instance, Chinese language and a lot of visual aids and tools and educational materials to really clearly explain our process, sit down with them and answer all their questions and create some clear milestones and goalposts so that we can guide them through the process in a way that they understand. Um, 
and not assuming that there's things that they should know or you know would or otherwise know, but really giving a very clear set of guardrails uh, has been super helpful for us to work with these companies because, again, knowing how intelligent they are, they don't need a lot of instruction. But if you can give them guideposts and rules and let them know where things are going, uh, things tend to go quite well. Now, I was going to ask, do you find them to be coachable? Any common blind spots that you, you find that executives in the, those major companies in China that they might have? So I certainly think that folks are coachable. I think the thing that is kind of unusual is the things that make an entrepreneur successful in China are, are often quite different than the things that might make an entrepreneur successful in other markets. So the, the folks that we work with in terms of, you know, things that we might think of as basic requirements, for instance, things like public speaking or, you know, being able to articulate your mission or, or, or particularly, you know, being on camera or just being the quote unquote face of the company. Uh, those things are relatively unusual because often a lot of folks who run these organizations in China keep a pretty low profile. Um, so we've had situations where, you know, despite a lot of coaching, we can put a certain executive on camera for an interview or a testimonial and, they're highly uncomfortable uh, unless, you know, for instance, we've gotten teleprompters or uh, done extensive coaching with the lines. A lot of them are, are not necessarily always very comfortable uh, articulating their visions about companies. And if you, you know, contrast that with, for instance, Silicon Valley with the Steve Jobs and, you know, Jeff Bezos types who are these brash folks who love to be on stage giving keynotes, it's it's a very, very different process. Um but I would say, you know, to your point about coachability, I would say these folks are definitely willing to to do it. Um, and they put in a tremendous amount of effort to memorize their lines and appear well on camera. And, you know, they'll they'll go all out to try to do their best. But it's definitely something I would say that doesn't come naturally to most of the, the folks that we work with. I would agree with that. But, you know, they more than make up for it in their diligence and their they do their homework. They come prepared, as you said. You can tell that as maybe nervous or slightly awkward as they might tend to be more, they have such a desire. Like they are so professional about being there and putting in the work. It's amazing, you know, compared to having interviewed and worked with other Western executives who just kind of get wheeled into the room. They look at a teleprompter and just rattle off the lines and go. Um, the folks here do really care. And they really, like you said, they sit down, they prepare, they memorize. Um, and, you know, there is a real effort that put, that goes in. And, and also they'll take notes, which for me is hilarious, you know, as just a, a, a filmmaker who doesn't have formal you know, training necessarily in some of the topics they discuss. A lot of these, you know, CEOs of billion dollar companies will say their lines and they'll look at me like, hey, was that OK? And I'm like, I can't believe that I have the ability to influence the behavior of someone who is at this level. You know, it's amazing. The mission, as stated on your on your website, so I'm mm -hmm. going to hold you to it, of course, is to create China's first truly global brand, mm -hmm. which is something I, I think that's a super interesting mission statement. And I want to dive into it. I'm going to put it to you in this way. Are you sure that that doesn't already exist? Uh, one thinks of, you know, we, we think of Alibaba, we think of Tencent, uh, the sub companies uh, and financial, what have you, uh, or maybe something like Shein in, in the retail space. Sure. So if it doesn't already exist, who's close, who's closest? And you know, why do you think for a country that has so much innovation and, and such a powerhouse economy, why hasn't it been created already? 
That's a great question. It's and a lot I, in there. Sorry. <laughs> I, I appreciate you. You, uh, yeah. Doing a call back to our website. I mean, this is a mission we, we created when we set up the company and speaking to sort of what I said earlier about the last 10 years, it's amazing how much progress has been made, uh, in terms of the development of Chinese companies to become global giants. And I think for me, I like to, you know, sort of create the analogy to what happened in Japan in the 1990s. You had this profusion of brands from Japan, you know, companies like Toshiba and Honda and Nintendo and like many others that were creating uh, really incredible products and they became global juggernauts. And that was something I wanted to see, especially myself when I first came to China. I was like, there's so much innovation here and there's so much going on. Why aren't there more brands that are going global? And I think in the early 2010s, I felt a little bit sort of confused and like slightly sad that that hadn't been happening. But in the last five years, you know, 2017 to, to now, I think I've been you know, sort of proven right. Like there have been incredible strides made by many of the companies you just mentioned. Um, and I think... You know, for instance, the first global brand, you could definitely make the argument that ByteDance, for example, or even just TikTok in and of itself, which is treated as a self-contained business unit in many ways, is a extremely global brand that originated in China. Uh, or Xi'an, like you said, which is like the most interesting, fast-growing, data-driven uh, fashion retail company in the world. Um, you know, many folks outside of China aren't even aware of the fact that that company is Chinese uh, to begin with. So I think, you know, certainly if that company has not arisen yet, I would say we're very much on the cusp of the first global brand. And I think for us, you know, we, we fortunately have been able to work with many of these companies and I hope that we can help even more uh, because I think that trend is only going to continue, you know, from 2022 and beyond. I want to double down on, you know, even what you were saying about going to Hong Kong, boots on the ground, meeting bankers, because... And I have a little familiarity with with actually what you're doing here, which is for publicly listed companies to really inspire, give put out content, even if it's just, you know, explainer videos on their website that are a lot of stake and a lot of sizzle at the same time that want to drive traffic and interest and excitement so that people will buy more stock. Right. I mean, once you go public. The job description of a CEO is improve stock price, right? That's essentially what they should be doing. That's that's where you come in, you know, and that's that's a lot of what Relay can do and, and does. And so I want to talk a little bit about, you know, IPO marketing in, in general, you know, pre and post. And I don't know if you do both. Do you do both? Sure. So, I mean, what we do is we create what's called a roadshow film. And this is a piece of marketing collateral that is used by primarily by the CFO of the client organization, where they're meeting with uh, folks either offline or via online meetings. And it's kind of the centerpiece of this roadshow meeting where they show this three to five minute corporate video that explains the company's mission and purpose for existence. Uh, and that's what we do. And is that to go IPO? It's in the kind of initial IPO period. So this is usually okay. right before a company will IPO. It's kind of ginning up excitement for an impending IPO. Just to make sure that I am on the right page, are you doing this for already publicly listed companies as well? Uh, we've we've done it in that in that kind of roadshow moment. So we've helped 42 Chinese internet giants create roadshow videos for their roadshow, their offline roadshow events. The fact that you're doing this for Chinese companies going public 
and a lot of them are going public on Western Stock Exchanges. How does that affect how you do this IPO marketing? And I'm I, I'm doing air quotes over here, but sure. I don't know if IPO marketing is an official you know track, but uh, I'm calling it IPO marketing. How does the fact that you're doing it for Chinese companies going public on Western Stock Exchanges affect how that marketing is done? Yeah. So the interesting thing is, I mean, you know, for instance, you, Todd, you've lived and spent time in China, but for a lot of folks outside of China, China is a complete unknown. And so when you think about film, we really have to find a way to visualize not just the company, but the actual landscape of China, whether it's things like the ease of delivery that takes place in Chinese cities or the ubiquity of mobile payments or you know, the fact that most folks are interacting primarily with technology products on mobile as opposed to via desktop. So we have to really find a way to encapsulate the entire landscape of China in, in you know, 2020 or 2021 or 2022 via these films and do it in a way that someone who, for instance, who lives in a Western market who's never set foot in China can actually understand. Um, so it's a big leap that needs to be made because, you know, people outside of China, they, they really don't have that familiarity with actually how things are done here. And how are you, I'm sorry if I put this in a negative connotation, but how are you baiting those hooks? You know, what are, what are some of the tried, tested and true hooks that you're using um, when, you, when you're building out these, the, this marketing for that specific type of audience, for this type of company that is headed towards this similar goal? What are the kind of marketing traits and hooks that you're, you're leaning on that you know work well? I mean, often when you see corporate videos that are made in China and actually also outside of China, there often is like a voice of God narrator who will just talk about the, you know, entire economic climate and the entire landscape and the GMV of the company and downloads and users and bombard you with all these statistics. And we find that to be the worst way to help someone understand what a company does. So oftentimes we're actually going to go very micro into, for instance, a day in the life of a specific user of a specific product, whether, for instance, that's Tencent Music or whether it's a company like Pinduoduo that we also worked with, will actually zero in on uh, the life of a particular user or perhaps a merchant who exists on a specific platform or perhaps some other participant in that ecosystem and actually show, you know, not through the voice of God approach, but actually through this specific narrative of that person to show how that app touches on their lives and facilitates what they do and empowers them in a way that that to do something they could never have done before. And we find, of course, you can couple that with, you know, charts and graphs and explanations of the entire uh, company value proposition. But we do find having a human touch goes a long way to help people understand uh, how things work in China. I want to dive into your YouTube channel as well, uh, Greater or yep. GRTR, uh, the way that it is. We'll have a, a link to that in the show notes for those listening who want to go and check it out. You've been making one new video per week every week for the past year. I want to ask, broadly speaking, what have you learned about the Internet during that one year? Making videos is always hard. And for the past six years, mm-hmm. you know, we've created a lot of corporate videos for clients in China. And the thing I think for us that started to become, you know, somewhat of a concern the last several years was becoming aware of the reality that the media landscape is changing. And this is true, you know, in so many different ways, but people are moving away from traditional media platforms and moving towards social media. And you can see that in politics and you can see it in influencer marketing and you can see it in so many different verticals. 
And we started to think, okay, well, all of our communications materials are relay creates now or B2B, but what about the consumer sector? And what about creating content for people on social media who aren't, you know, for instance, a small select group of investors, but perhaps like a broader audience. So we last year at the tail end of 2020 created uh, this YouTube channel and sort of at the end of that year made this new year's resolution, which we'd create one new piece of content every week. Um, and, and by the way, just a quick plug, there's a book called The Slight Edge, uh, which is just this fantastic book about the merits of putting in a small bit of effort towards a larger goal uh, that very much inspired my entire approach to this, this project. So if anyone is looking for a good book or is quarantined in the future, definitely read The Slight Edge uh, to learn about how we sort of structured this. But in any case, we made one video every week, and it was a fascinating process because we put these same videos on China's largest video streaming site, uh, Bilibili, as well as YouTube, just to see how things would go. And just to break out probably two to three simple lessons, uh, the first one was uh, content that that we put on YouTube elicits a very, very strong reaction uh, because of the fact that it's related to China. And from a political vantage point, it means that you can have people who really love your content or people who really hate your content based a lot on not whether or not they like what you've done, but actually based much more about their personal opinion about China or the political system in China, et cetera. So you'll see the comment section of videos filled with comments that are often a little bit difficult to read as the person whose face is in the videos. Uh, and I think, you know, just realizing the extent to which political conversation is part of the narrative uh, in 2022 for, for companies originating in China, I think that's something to definitely be aware of. The second one I think that that is important and unusual and kind of unique is that people just aren't aware of how ahead of the game is China is in certain particular verticals. So we made a video, for instance, about 5G, you know, the, the Internet connectivity technology and China's 5G network. Uh, is just leagues beyond what exists in the United States and pretty much every country in the world, except for a couple small pockets in, uh, for instance, South Korea and I think some country in Northern Europe that I'm forgetting. Um, but essentially, like China's progress in rolling out 5G at scale nationwide is just phenomenal. And I think a lot of people outside of China would doubt that or perhaps had certain suspicions around it, but we did categorical tests and basically through this video dispelled a lot of myths and also showed the incredible uh, fact that basically anywhere you are in Shanghai, whether you're underground on the subway or whether you're you know, in the outskirts of the city or whether you're uh, underground or above ground or in a skyscraper, basically wherever you go, you're not getting 3G or E or LTE or whatever kind of funky standard, you're getting actual 5G, uh, high quality bandwidth, which means you can download, you know, and stream 4K video content, even when you're on an underground subway that's moving, you know, underneath one of the biggest metropolis metropolises in the world, uh, which, for instance, if you're in New York or Boston or San Francisco, simply isn't the case. Um, <clears throat> so I think, you know, just taking topics that are in the media, for instance, things like cryptocurrency or 5G or, for instance, China's digital yuan, these topics that are often discussed in the media and poorly understood, we set this mission of making explainers to take these topics and actually show what they're really like. And, and for us, that's been extremely rewarding. And we're starting to see a lot of interest in, in uh, this type of content. I've got a couple other questions, but I want to stick with YouTube specifically for a second sure. and talk about monetizing. Are you trying to monetize? What does it look like? 
trying to monetize, especially as a China vlogger in 2022? What is that going to look like? Monetization on YouTube is pretty interesting. And I would also, you know, say, obviously, like we tell a lot of stories about things that happen in China. But the interesting thing is in China, monetizing is very hard. So if you're on Billy Billy or a Chinese social media platform, you're not often going to get any uh, sharing of revenues from advertising sales to the creators, which means in China, at least a lot of creators have to work with brands in order to monetize their traffic. YouTube is different. So YouTube places ads on your videos or in pre-roll and about half of that revenue is going to flow directly to the creator if you've passed their monetization threshold, which I think is a certain number of thousand followers. And so on YouTube, you can actually monetize without putting product placement in your videos itself, which is great because a lot of creators can make, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars annually uh, based on their content. For us, I think our goal, you know, given that this is sort of an ancillary business for us, we're not necessarily trying to make it into a cash cow uh, and, you know, turn it in specifically to like a, a central business unit for us. But what we do want to do is make enough money via our video views to offset our production costs. Because obviously, you know, we have equipment and personnel and staff and uh, editing, et cetera, that we spend money on a regular basis. And our goals for the channel was to monetize, you know, just enough to cover our costs. There's a lot of stuff we could do if we wanted to monetize more aggressively. For instance, we could do many more sponsored pieces of content. Uh, but the problem is if we're really trying to be an objective channel that really breaks out topics in an unbiased way, if every other video becomes a sponsored piece of content, our objectivity and our authenticity, I think, starts to become questionable. So for us, we haven't highly pursued monetizing the channel. Um, but if you're a brand owner who's listening, who'd like to, uh, you know, uh, have a lucrative offer for a, an episode sponsorship, definitely get in touch. What is the difference that you can point to between Western platforms and Chinese platforms? Differences and similarities, really. And I'm, I'm covering all of it with audience content strategy, position, language difference, anything you know about the algorithms you want to mention. Just discuss that for a second and then talk to us about the future for your channel. So it's a wonderful question about the difference in platforms and algorithms. I think that... Two big differences I would identify is that um, evergreen content on, on YouTube specifically is very different than the way Chinese platforms work. So often in China, the platforms are uh, encouraging content that will blow up in a very short period of time in terms of views and fans and following, and then sort of dissipate into the past. Whereas on YouTube, you can have old videos that steadily accrue traffic over a much longer period of time. So, you know, I referenced before our video about 5G or a video, for instance, we made in the past about, um, you know, social, actually we made a video explaining social media platforms like Billy Billy versus YouTube in China that continues to accrue a steady amount of traffic over time. So I'd say the algorithms in Western platforms favor slow and steady growth of viewership and, and following, whereas ones in China are much more about these kind of one hit wonder moments uh, and, and kind of explosive growth for a short period of time followed by the need to continue to feed the beast and create more content if you want to continue to accrue and gather followers. Um, the second thing I would say is that fans in China are much more engaged and much more, inter at least in my experience, they really want to interact with creators in a way that isn't necessarily true on YouTube. So 
if you take, for instance, Billy Billy, China's big streaming uh, video streaming website, you actually have the ability not just to make comments below the video, but you can actually make comments that appear what are called bullet titles that will actually appear overlaid atop the video and scroll across the screen from left to right. So, for instance, if there's a villain in a particular video, you'll have a bunch of people making comments like, you know, cursing at this person or mentioning something or, you know, expressing how they feel. And it won't appear below the video in the comment section. It will actually appear atop the video in a scrolling title that goes from left to right and pans across the screen. So you have a much more sort of meta relationship with the content where the viewers are not only passive uh, watchers of content, but they're actually in this kind of conversation with the content. So I think, you know, again, for brand owners who are thinking about creating content that will, you know, live in China or be shown to Chinese viewers, be aware of the fact that people have a much more direct and emotional and sort of interactive relationship with whatever you create than they might be on Western platforms. And the future for the channel. What do you got planned for 2022? Yes, sir. So making one film every week we found to be good, but also notice that feeding the beast in that way does sometimes create a scenario where we can't have that deep focus on specific topics that especially require a lot more focus. And so we're going to do another sort of New Year's experiment in 2022, where instead of doing 52 videos, we're going to produce 12 videos and really in each one put in the effort and, you know, the legwork to ensure that each one is a deep dive into a specific topic. Uh, So the first of those videos will come out at the end of this month, just before uh, Chinese New Year. So again, uh, as I'm obligated to say, like and subscribe, uh, click the subscribe button below if you guys are interested in checking it out. Do that on our podcast first and then go over to Greater and do it over there. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you are developing a new app to connect Chinese brands with global social media influencers called Mm Relay.club. Now, can you tell us a little bit about what this is? I'm hoping I didn't, you know, not spoiling any any kind of secrets or, or, you know, this is, you know, something in stealth. But tell us about what this is and why you're doing this. Yeah, sure. Relay Club has been something we've thought about for a long time but really just in the last six months have brought to life. And the purpose of Relay Club has has actually been sort of based on the fact that we created this YouTube channel. Many clients were approaching me and saying, hey, Jim, can you help us either? Can you can we collaborate on your YouTube channel or because you seem to know a lot about YouTube? Can you help us find other content creators that we can work with? And this is, you know, brands like Baidu or Popmart or Xiaohongshu or many other Chinese companies. And so initially we worked in more of an agency model where we were helping our clients individually reach out to specific influencers, YouTubers, TikTokers, et cetera, to create content. And then having worked with many internet platform companies, we decided we should really create a tool which could function as more of a, almost like a CRM whereby clients could select, find, seek out, and uh, choose to work with particular creators and almost sort of like a shopping cart in Amazon, select the creators they'd like to work with and create campaigns and manage the entire campaign flow through an online tool. And so we're building this now. And actually the timeline we mentioned before of launching at the end of this month is uh, also true for Relay Club. So this will be launching uh, at that point in its beta form. And we're really excited to get in the hands of uh, people who are interested in doing uh, influencer marketing campaigns, particularly from China to the global, the global landscape. Awesome, buddy. Thank you so much for doing this. Very well spoken, very well prepared. Uh, thank you for being such an awesome guest. Do you have maybe one or two other guests who are experts in their fields that 
even yourself would like to potentially hear interviewed on this show. Yes, sir. So, uh, and again, uh, thank you for your uh, deep and sonorous baritone uh, and your your wonderful interview skills today. I, I really enjoyed this. I uh, There's two folks who come to mind as potential people to interview. Uh, I have a good friend named William August, who has actually been one of my inspirations. He himself was a very popular influencer uh, in China who set up his own account on Billy Billy and became extremely popular in 2017, 2018. And he then has gone on uh, to leverage that success into now being a real e-commerce guru who's working in the live streaming space, but not in China. He's actually working in the UK now helping uh, you know, TikTok as they're expanding globally with this live streaming, live uh, stream e-commerce phenomenon, which has often happened in China where you'll, you know, for instance, see a host who's selling products through live stream, but this phenomenon is now expanding globally. And at the very forefront of this is my friend, William August, who's uh, uh, from the UK, spent, I think, seven or eight years in China, uh, but very knowledgeable guy who can speak to influencer marketing, both in China and the West. And I think someone who you'd really enjoy talking to. Um, separately, I would also point you to John Hartman. Uh, so he's, uh, previously he was the, uh, one of the head managing editors of the English language edition of TechNode, Um, and then he's gone on to now be at the South China morning post, uh, in Hong Kong, working as part of their data team. Uh, and also just a very sharp guy, very, very knowledgeable, um, knows often what's going to happen in China long before it ever reaches the news. So if I ever want a soothsayer who's going to tell me where things are going, uh, John is definitely the guy to talk to. Um, so, uh, yeah, I would say these two are definitely folks you could uh, put on the list. Jim, thanks again for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Todd. And thanks again to the the broader team uh, at the negotiation and WPIC. You guys are doing amazing stuff. And yeah, thank you so much. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.